0: Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, the House of Representatives passes the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act.
1: What this agenda is doing is it's anti reality, it's
2: anti science.
0: Albert Moeller looks at a candid admission from those pushing the sexual revolution.
2: This isn't just about athletes. This is about human beings saying that the very notion that there's a normative definition of a human being is male or female now has to be overcome in the name of
0: liberation. Yes, you ought to trust your conscience on this.
2: Just as the Bible
3: teaches, we are created male and female. That's not only a religious precept. It's something that we can see in nature and that science has validated that point.
0: Plus admits all the turmoil in our country and in the culture, a reminder of what's important.
4: Faith
3: produces
0: hope. I'm Scott Furrow, host of the Pastor Scott Show, coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at KKLA.com and also through the TuneIn Radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with women's sports. If I would have told you, even four or five years ago, that this would be a contentious subject in our nation today, many of you would have laughed off the suggestion. But it is a contentious issue. Last week, the narrow Republican majority in the House of Representatives passed the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act. Nicole Hunt of Focus on the Family has been tracking this. She was a guest of Kevin McCullough on AM570, the mission
5: in New York City. It happened. The House passed legislation um, that was essentially summarized as saving a girls' sports, saving women's sports, uh, and that was, the, that was the goal of the legislation uh, to prevent biological males from competing in those sports as, quote, transgender athletes, uh, and this came after a debate in which a lot of the Democrats accused Republicans of bullying transgender students by even calling up the bill. Here to discuss from Focus on the Family is Nicole Hunt. She's been with us. Uh, We've covered a number of family-related topics. But, Nicole, this strikes, at to me, at more than just a family issue. This is truly a woman's uh, safety and rights issue across the board. And... I don't know if the other if the if the team that supports letting men compete against women, I don't know if they're going to win this uh, on on the public debate. It seems to me that people across all kinds of partisan viewpoints really don't want to see their daughters have to uh, swim against guys that have longer wingspan or play basketball against uh, boys that uh, have sharper elbows and way more or any number of other things. I mean, there's a reason why Title IX came about, and it seems to me that as of late, the party that pushed Title IX, which was the Democrats, have really gone to great lengths to try to erase some of the gains that that legislation brought about.
1: That's 100% accurate. Here's the truth. The truth is allowing biological men to compete against biological women in sports is completely anti-woman. And what's happening is these biological... Female athletes are being robbed of all kinds of opportunities. They're being robbed of athletic titles, scholarships, future sporting opportunities, because they're being forced to compete against biological males who have an advantage over them.
5: Yeah. Well, and what we're seeing is in some places around the globe, this has begun to be addressed. But for some reason, here in the United States, this administration and the, and the ones that are in charge of the political left at the moment, seem very, very focused on this in a way that doesn't even match some of our very, you know, quote, liberal and quote, progressive uh, European allies, etc. I mean, uh, a lot of Europe has backed away from all of this. Why are we still pursuing it so hard?
1: That's accurate. And the truth is, is it's not only anti-woman. What this agenda is doing is it's, it's anti-reality. It's anti-science. And why we see the left kind of imploding on itself is, right, you generally see feminists standing up for women's rights. But they've moved so far left that now the feminists have to stand up to even the further far leftist group who's arguing that, you know, men are the same as women if they think they are. And so there's even an internal fight among the left that they're hurting their own objectives and goals in the long run.
5: It seems to me that I've not heard a peep out of the National Organization for Women, uh, the Gloria Steinems, the Gloria Allreds, these, these types that have been so vocal in the past. I haven't, I haven't heard a word from any of them. Why, why do you suppose that is?
1: I think the internal fight is really happening behind the scenes. Um And what we do see is, for instance, when folks who do tend to have more of a platform like J.K. Rowling come out against it, they get shamed for standing up and for saying, this isn't right. Um, and so the truth is, is, we need to have more people standing up like her and others. And a lot of young women athletes are doing that now, standing up uh, and saying, this isn't fair in our sport. But I think that those discussions and those disagreements are mostly happening behind closed doors and people don't get a chance to see it. I
5: think that you're right. And interestingly, it has taken sports to bring this to our attention when really there are so many issues related to this in the culture. I mean, you know, I don't want my daughter to grow up in a world where she has to fear for her safety every time she needs to use the facilities
1: 100% accurate and and the truth is is that that's been happening right like all we have to do is look back to the story that came out of Loudon County Virginia and mm-hmm. the girl student female that was um, assaulted by a biological male and then the school district tried to cover it
5: up and the and reason they covered, they covered it up, it up exactly. is they didn't want the
1: it is hurting our girls and we need women and men and girls and boys, everyone, to, be, to stand up on behalf of women and girls and to, to ask for, you know, fairness. There should be fairness on the field. There should be fairness in the bathroom. These kids need to be protected.
0: Yes, these kids need to be protected. One challenge we've encountered is the argument that it's not really happening. That is, biological males aren't really competing against biological females, so why are you even talking about this? Albert Moeller looked at a candid admission from within the LGBTQ community from his briefing podcast.
2: Carly Webb is the writer of this article. Here's the headline. Sports need to discuss cisgender discomfort over transgender athletes winning. Now, remember, Nancy Armour said it doesn't happen or it happens so rarely you don't need to worry about it. But here you have the website, OutSport, saying it needs to happen more often in order to make the point to conservatives and others, cisgender people who won't get over their discomfort with transgender identity. We need to put it right before the public. We need to make the public look at it. We need to make the public like it. Carly Webb begins by saying, Leah Thomas hit the water and won an NCAA swimming championship a little more than a year ago. Since then, the world governing bodies for swimming and track and field have banned transgender women from competing. Skipping a bit, the article says, quote, we've seen anti-trans nonsense rear its head because a trans woman won a snooker tournament and another put together a couple wins in disc golf. We've seen high school hysteria that went as far as a high school team in a state tournament forfeiting because the other team had a trans girl on it, end quote. Remember, this article is coming from the LGBTQ community. It is coming from a website known as OutSports. It is coming from the direction of saying we need to make conservative America get over it. When it comes to the transgender revolution. And out sports is after all about sports. So listen to this quote. This mentality is harming sports at every level. This is a prime mover behind 18 states passing laws that would keep transgender kids off their school teams that match their gender. A right of access and opportunity that should be open to every school student. Then this, and I quote. The real monster here is deeper perceptions of a cisgender populace that is largely uncomfortable with transgender people and uncomfortable with them possibly winning in a sport. Next, quote, The first flashpoint is the cisgender fixation with bodies, especially in women's sports. Some bodies are lionized as normative, others are demonized, end quote. Now, that just gets to something of incredible importance. Here you have the rejection of any kind of normativity when it comes to human beings. Because that's actually what's going on here. This isn't just about athletes. This is about human beings saying that the very notion that there's a normative definition of a human being as male or female now has to be overcome in the name of liberation. I wanted to get to this particular statement because I think it helps to explain what's really going on here. And it's not being said by some kind of cultural conservative describing what's behind the LGBTQ revolution. This is a statement made by one of its revolutionaries and a commercial website that is intended to further LGBTQ interests in sports at every level, including childhood, teenage sports, school sports, intercollegiate sports, and professional sports. All of them. And you'll notice that what it identifies as the great enemy to be overcome is the deeper perceptions of, quote, a cisgender populace that is largely uncomfortable with transgender people and uncomfortable with them possibly winning in a sport. What's the evidence of that? These people who are cisgender, that means to say man or woman, as in biological male, biological female, that basically defines normative human experience. But then we are told that the very idea of a normative human experience or even a normative human body is now what has to be overcome. Hugo Gurdon of the Washington Examiner gets it right when responding to this particular argument. He says, quote, we oppose biological men being allowed into women's sports because we are civilized people, because we know it's unfair and often dangerous. We also know that those who push this transformation of our culture are suffering from a psychological disorder that needs treatment, or they are just cynically riding a bandwagon that they hope, often with good reason, will bring them praise, social status, fame, and wealth. He then says this, and this is quite important, quote, There are many more who, perhaps fearing the left's aggression, are merely weakly unresisting as they are swept along by an extraordinary ideological fashion. But he concludes, quote, They too will eventually find themselves as worn down as the female athletes being forced to give up their trophies in private spaces because if there is any one thing the left has made clear, it is that they will accept nothing less than total capitulation, end quote. I wanted to get us to that point today in order to understand that this is where we really stand on the threshold of a major change in our society. And it's also interesting to note that, as Christians in a society like this, or for that matter, in societies increasingly all around the world, Christians actually represent not just a resistance movement to this kind of revolution, but an oasis of sanity where we just have to remind ourselves we're no smarter than the rest of humanity on these issues. We're not. We do not have a superior human wisdom to what is being presented here. We do not. We instead have the word of God and we have instructions from the creator who made us in his image and made us male and female as to how we are to understand humanity, how we are to understand each other, how we are to understand male and female, man and woman, boy and girl, how we are to understand these issues that are coming at us so quickly. But it betrays so much to find out that all, All of a sudden, we're being told that the very notion of normativity is the problem. And if there is any one statement that actually would serve to subvert the entire order of creation, it is that there is nothing normative. Coming up...
3: Just as the Bible teaches, we are created male and female. That's not only a religious precept. It's something that we can see in nature and that science has validated that point.
0: More on humanity, male and female, in the next segment of The Christian Outlook.
6: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back
0: to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show. Great to be with you. The sheer speed of change we're seeing in our nation on all matters related to especially the T in LGBT has left a number of parents and families wondering how to respond, wondering what battles ought to be fought, and wondering what choices need to be made with regard to their own kids. Mary Rice Hassan is working to create tools and resources to help. She heads up the Person and Identity Project with EPPC, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She was a guest of Don Crow on WAVA in the nation's capital.
7: Well, this is a scourge that we uh, didn't even see coming for the most part as a culture and a nation. But obviously it had its roots much further back than what people ever realized. Can you take us back to the Houston story?
3: Yes, sure. I I think it's important to realize that what we understand by gender ideology is this belief system that the human person is autonomous and controls even reality itself. So the the basis of the belief is that the person can self-define who they are, regardless of the truth of their body, their actual physical body. So, There are a lot of underlying philosophies to that that go back really hundreds of years from materialism to atheism, et cetera. But the particular rise of gender ideology, we can look in the mid-1990s, there was a small group of uh, what were called then transsexual activists who published something called the International Bill of Gender Rights. It it, it was a self-important document because no one else thought it was important, (laughs) and and nobody paid attention to it at that point. But really what they did was they laid out the blueprint of what we're seeing now, setting out these false beliefs about the person, making claims and demands of how the law then should allow people to self-define an identity and everyone else has to go along, and changing marriage laws and and norms about sexuality. So it was all there. It's just it it took several decades for us to see the decline in the culture, the changes in the culture that really paved the way for uh, this to to, uh, explode on a larger scale through government and corporations and particularly the public schools.
7: Now, it may be assumption we make all too readily, but we figure with educated people, in quotes, doctors and uh, mm-hmm. psychologists, etc., that there would be a very minuscule margin that would ever even flirt with the idea of embracing this, and yet it seems to be coming in, uh, coming into an endorsement at levels that are just mind-boggling with what we supposed to be rational, clear-thinking people who now are saying, no, this is all legit, this is all as you've described it, and they're supporting and promoting it.
3: Right, right. And I think you've put your finger on something that, you know, our common sense, as well as science, tell us that it's absolutely true that just as the Bible teaches, we are created male and female. That's not only a religious precept. You know, it's something that we can see in nature and that science has validated that point. And so when you see people who are scientists or who are educated and, and, should know better, frankly. Going along with this, you have to ask why, and I think it's for two reasons. One, there's a an understandable desire not to offend or not to uh, or to be compassionate to someone who is struggling with this belief where their mind is kind of disconnected from the reality of, of their body. But a lot of it is really ideology. It's there are people who believe there is there is no truth, there is no God. There is no human nature, and therefore we human beings should be free to do whatever we want, even if it's destructive.
7: And does it not create a new level of mistrust toward the medical profession in general when you have, uh, again, supposedly uh, well-trained, well-informed, intelligent physicians and others who are, uh, if nothing else, using this as a a cash flow of, of sorts and the havoc wreaked on people with surgeries that many times cannot be reversed. How is that justified among the medical community?
3: Well, it really isn't. And and parents should be aware that oftentimes we hear uh, on the news and, and such the claim that all of the major medical associations endorse what's called, quote, gender-affirming care. Gender-affirming care is using hormones in surgery to destroy the natural function of the body. You can't change sex, so it, it, it can't do anything positive. All it can do is break down your body and then change some external things about your appearance. So it's really destructive. But we have activist medical organizations, you know, the, they're, they're lobbies. They're here in Washington, and they have uh, endorsed this as an ideological matter And they're not looking at at real children. They're not looking at reality. They just don't want to be on the wrong side of trans activists. But it's it's going to be a medical scandal. It already is. But I just fear for the number of children who are being led down this path right now. and, And they'll never get their whole healthy bodies
0: back. As we watch all of these issues unfold in our nation... I recognize that they can create a sense of angst and uncertainty. So many are asking questions like, what does the future look like? And what should I be doing? I'll answer that simply. Press into Christ. Pursue him all the more earnestly as the days are uncertain. Teresa Lusk is a counselor and speaker in the Seattle area. She was a guest of Tim Gato's on AM 820, The Word in Seattle.
8: Tell the listeners what this survey, what it what it shows, what it says. Can you break it down for us?
4: Well, definitely it's talking about how there's a lot of church attendance uh, lowering. You know, they're wondering, well, how there's church attendance lowering, but yet, you know, people are feeling there's still a, a portion of people who practice faith, and they're still feeling that happiness. And so they, they're wondering, well, how is this happening? Well, you know, church attendance doesn't actually have to be the whole reason why there's why people are happier you can actually have faith and i'm all for i'm a faith person so i'm all for going to church but you know not going to church does not mean that you are not still happy that you do not still have faith of course we encourage you and recommend that you do that but there is something about you know some traditional values uh having children and practicing your faith and being a patriot things of that nature that actually contribute to people's happiness So I was encouraged, uh, regardless of, you know, there's some people may come in and say, well, that's not so. But, you know, if you see the trend, if you talk to people who actually value, you know, the family, the traditional family, faith, and, and, you know, things of that nature, I think that you can definitely see a correlation between those practices and principles and happiness.
8: It also said um, in this Wall Street Journal that the happiest people in America are older, female, and believe in God. Talk to us about that.
4: Well, you know, the, the older generations they did seem to practice faith a lot more, church attendance a lot more. So there is a correlation between that and being happier. I just think that there's something about holding on to faith, holding on to family, that really allowed people to express some of these joys. You know, I'll give you an example. When you when you're a person of faith, what drives you because you have faith. You you're, tend to be a, a family person, so what makes you happy? Family. You know, You know, traditionally, family brings you joy. You know, I definitely think that people who have faith have hope, and uh, when you don't have a lot of hope and you kind of go on about your own, uh, you know, you're leading yourself, that's not necessarily good. You have to have a moral compass, something that, that leads you and says, hey, this way, will bring you some peace and some joy because that's another uh, factor that's tied in with faith people is that they tend to have more more peace in certain things it doesn't mean that they don't get anxious and that they don't get depressed it just means that when those things come they're able to hang on a little stronger than somebody who doesn't have faith because faith produces hope
9: coming up 88 percent of americans today still say they believe in god at some level
0: when the christian outlook returns
6: in a moment Welcome
0: back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Scott Furrow. Trust in God, trust in our institutions. Both seem to be on the decline. We live in a cynical age and distrust breeds distrust. So, how ought we respond? Ryan Burge is the author of The Nuns, Where They Came From, who they are, and where they are going. He was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5
5: FM in Pittsburgh. Let's turn our focus, Ryan, because you dig deep into what, what are, we talk about a lot here, which is faith. You may not be a, a person of spiritual faith, but does that d- deny your existence, The you know, the, the idea of God in your life?
9: Yeah, so I wrote a post called trust and believe or not trust and believe right so does institutional trust run hand in hand with like belief in god you know if you give up on one do you give up on the other or vice versa right and what the data says is that yeah i mean institute a lack of institutional trust is also correlated with a lack of certain belief in god it's almost like Mm. everything that's foundational to like american life if one piece crumbles every other piece starts cracking as well and crumbling as well so people who have very low confidence in religion also have very low confidence in god at the same time really okay yeah. so what about if a person like if a person's completely secular yeah so what's interesting is if you if you look for the share of americans who say they have no confidence organized religion and don't believe in god at all it's only about 4% of americans though Okay, Here's a stunning fact for a lot of people 88% of americans today still say they believe in god at some level hmm. okay 88%. even though the nuns 88% yeah. So when we ask you what you believe about God, they say either God doesn't exist or I can't know if God exists or not. That's 12% of Americans. 88% say they believe in God at least sometimes. So only 12% of Americans from a vertical standpoint, a belief standpoint, say that God does not exist. We are stubbornly believing people in this country, although I think if institutional trust continues to decline, I think we're going to see that certain belief in God also decline at the same time because I don't think people are good at separating the institution
5: From the higher power belief part of it. I see. So, Ryan, you said in this country. So is America different than the rest of the free world in some way? Oh, goodness gracious.
9: I I was talking to my students in religion and politics class last week about how we're weirdos. Like you can learn nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing you learn about American (laughs) religion and politics can be translated to anywhere else on planet Earth. Isn't that
4: interesting?
9: Oh, absolutely. We're one of the most economically prosperous countries on the planet, right? Easily in the top five. But 52% of Americans believe in God or say religion's very important to them. If you look at our comparative, uh, you know, countries, yeah, it should be. We should be less than 10%. Really? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, we are a weird. We are way more religious than we should be, or we're way richer than we should be. You know, one of those two things has to be true. So, when I study American religion and politics. I don't ever get asked to go speak internationally because what I know does not translate to Western Europe or Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia because they understand religion completely differently than we do in America. Interesting.
6: Okay, so
3: I know this isn't maybe your specialty, but what's the difference? Like what why why is America so unique in that way?
9: Yeah, so I think the first thing is that we never established a state church in America. Got it. You know, if you want people to hate something, make it part of the government. Mm Because we just don't like the government. And, you know, most of Western Europe, which is where a lot of our, you know, like ideological thoughts come from, Mm -hmm. is Western Europe. They have state religion. In places like Germany now, you still pay taxes to the church Mm -hmm. in many parts of Germany still to this day. And German religiosity, less than 10% of Germans go to church every week. So I think it's become like part of the establishment. So we never did that. And so instead, what we had is religious competition in this country. And if you look at America, we may be the most religiously diverse country on the planet. I mean there are many counties when, when one – the largest religion might be 30 percent of the population or 40 percent of the population, which means that there's a lot of little 10, 20 yeah. percent religions out there. And when you compete, you got to get better, right? The marketplace is not dominated by one player, so if you want to get market share, you got to preach better. you got to minister better. you got to mm. reach out to the community better, and that competition – I think, really sharpened American religion in such a way that made some really good preachers and some really good churches and some really good ministries. I mean, Billy Graham's an American. Like We need to be proud of that. Mm -hmm. He figured out how to reach out to those people, and if you don't have competition – there's not that kick in the pants of, like, i got to get better to reach more people. America, we're all about competition. For good mm-hmm. or bad, capitalism mm-hmm. made religion in America a lot better than it could have been.
5: Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, Ryan, we don't want to leave uh, with a bad taste well, no, in well, our well, And
3: I have, I have one question
9: I have to okay. ask him.
5: Is yeah. there a silver lining in all this? I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about the demise of faith in the fabric of who we are as America. Is there some good news at all?
9: I think there's a lot of young people who are realizing they need... Spiritual help. They need social help. They need to feel part of the community. And I call it the third space problem. First space is is home. Second space is work. What's the third space? Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be religion or even the the moose or the Elks or the American Legion or the bowling league. We have a third space problem in America. And I think a lot of people in my generation, older millennials and even younger millennials are going, man, why am I not happy? Why do I not feel content? I need to find a place to be part of something. And I think you're going to see this happening with younger generations. They're going to go, we need to fix this problem. We need to find a third space. And here's religion all over the country with all these beautiful buildings ready to build and fix that third space problem.
0: Coming up, understanding our American moment.
10: They tried to push this narrative that transgender community is large, that it's oppressed, and it's subject every day to violence from Christian supremacists. and.
0: Victor Davis Hanson, when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay
6: with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
0: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. In this turbulent moment in our nation's history, it is difficult to step back and make sense of it all, to assess what's going on at arm's length, to see it in the broad scope of our nation's history, and even to see some of the signs of hope even amidst the developments that concern us. Eric Metaxas turned to writer and historian Victor Davis Hansen.
8: What we're seeing, to my mind, it is somehow healthy that because the Biden administration and company have control, we can see with clarity The just manifold disaster. There's no word that's strong enough. It's not that things are less good. It's that everywhere we look, we see disaster upon disaster upon disaster. So it's a clarifying moment uh, for America. And my thesis is that there are many who were sleepwalking, who were drifting along, who are in fact waking up because things are so bad everywhere we look. And it's beginning to affect people who
10: ordinarily wouldn't be affected. I think that's right. And look what the gains have happened in just the last year. So you have uh, Elon Musk willing to lose 40 billion dollars and he took t- Twitter out of the left's hands. And that was their greatest social media weapon. And he put it in the general domain as a disinterested platform. That was an amazing development. We kind of underappreciate that. We have other people like Matt Taibbi. I remember he was a Rolling Stone reporter. I was an object of attacks from him a lot. But the point is that he got sick. Or Glenn Greenwald, or Bill Maher, or all, all of these people who were on the left that had large audiences of certain, even Joe Rogan. All of these people have now said the the ultimate expression of this progressive agenda, which at one time I bought into, is what we see now. And they're and they're can- cannibalizing anybody on the left who doesn't completely agree with them, and it's not sustainable. And therefore, I'm going to use my talents. As I used to promote this agenda, I'm going to try to oppose it. That's something that I think is important. Uh, It's going to be very important, I think, politically in this next presidential primary cycle that whether you're for DeSantis or Trump or whatever, your candidate, Glenn Youngkin, that everybody agrees to support the nominee. Because we do not have a Romney-McCain candidate of any stature. All of these candidates have bought into the conservative populist agenda: tough on China, close borders, tough on crime, Jacksonian, don't tread on me foreign policy. We're not we're not going to have an ideological fight at least among the front runners. So while we all have preferences for one or the other, it, they, there's no margin of error. So we're going to have to unite. I think would disqualifying trait with any candidate who's running for president who says, I will not support the nominee, I wouldn't vote for.
8: It's interesting I to me, the sifting it. that we're seeing, when you mentioned figures that were either on the left or somehow in the middle, w- whether Elon Musk or Matt B, Joe Rogan, on and on and on. on. Uh, it, it's interesting that there's a sifting going on and that we're seeing people whom I ordinarily would have dismissed as on the left, whether it's uh, RFK Jr. or others, who seem... To have a certain level of common sense that makes them difficult to categorize as, you know, these are, these are leftists, these are Democrats, that, that things have gotten so bad that there are all kinds of people willing to jump ship. Tulsi Gabbard seems to me a prominent example of that. If you yes. just speak common sense, if you just talk about what is going on, suddenly the left is your enemy.
10: Yeah, and there's certain issues that the left has fixated on in its in its echo chamber isolation that they had no idea of the uh, opposition to it. And one is this radical transgender issue, and they they tried to push this narrative that transgendered community is large, that it's oppressed and it's subject every day to violence from Christian supremacists. and And I think now people realize whether they look at the potential Kavanaugh assassin or who had the manifesto they won't release in Tennessee or what we saw at San Francisco State or what we saw in New Zealand, that this group is actually very, very small. It's a creation of elite left wing people who are trying to have some kind of wedge civil rights issue. And the the people that are running it are very violent. And I think that's getting out now. And that does not resonate well with a lot of democratic constituencies, poor people, Hispanics. They don't understand this this obsession with biological males uh, competing in women's sports just to take one aspect of it. And so a lot of the things that the left is doing and, and the suppression of free speech, what we saw at Stanford Law School, I, I worked there at, at the, on the campus. And I can tell you that we're not to the point where these people are going to be brave enough to speak up. But privately, all of these professors and everybody said, I'm afraid of the students. This is like the French Revolution. My gosh, this can't go on. And so I think you're getting to the point where they're starting to see what we created was a Frankenstein monster that's attacking us. It's
8: nice, at least, that they're seeing it. We're at this kind of tipping point where if you have common sense, you realize they're dead. They are existing on fumes at this point. They can't sustain themselves. It's like the city of Chicago or San Francisco. The question is, what is going to happen? Are there enough people willing to abandon these places, to take their money away from these places and let them sink uh, like a a sinkhole into the center of the earth? Because I simply can't take any of them seriously anymore, ever.
10: Yeah. I think what we're watching is all of these national megaphones are now eroding and shrinking to strictly partisan, smaller audience megaphones. So... I think the network news or uh, we know CNN has almost invented itself out of existence by going so hard left. Everybody talks about the recovery of the NFL. It's down 7% from its high point. NBA is down 30%. Washington Post is in more trouble, I think, as far as its readership than the New York Times. Here where I am, Stanford, Stanford's in actually a crisis mode after the law school, Bankman Freed, his parents, Bankman Freed's on campus, bailed out by a former law dean. We had the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos, the president is under investigation. All of these things have taken that, that blue chip brand and infuriated the alumni. And so now I think everybody understands that if you have a Harvard or Stanford degree, people have to have an asterisk behind it. They think, you know what, The admissions are not transparent. The curriculum is not demanding. And I think the same thing with the news. People think if it's the New York Times, I don't trust it. CNN is is over with, basically. If you take away CNN, there's, there's places on the Internet that got a lot bigger audience than CNN. And so I, I don't think they have any clout over half the country anymore. I, I, you know, I know conservative authors used to think I have to have my book reviewed in the New York Times book review or I have to, it would be good to, for the Washington Post. Who cares now? Nobody cares. You can go on your own podcast and get as many, as many followers as you can there or the audience that reads the New York Times is so polarized and partisan that they weren't going to buy your book anyway. Coming up, We're watching the greatest change in demographics, I think, in our whole lifetime. A few more minutes with Victor Davis Hanson
0: when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
9: Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and Amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to
0: The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. I'm speaking to you right now from my home studio of KKLA in Glendale, California. You know, I've lived in California for my entire life, Southern California for my entire life, and I love the Golden State. I really, really do. But I also recognize something. California has become Exhibit A with so much that is wrong in the nation. You all ought to be paying attention. You remember the oft-repeated line, as goes California, so goes the nation? Well, let's catch a few more minutes of Victor Davis Hanson with Eric Metaxas.
8: Across the board, we are seeing the decline of civilization all around us. The idea that borders are racist. Uh, The idea that uh, criminals are not criminals. There's no good or evil. And the question, Victor Davis Hanson, is what are the possibilities for the future?
10: Well, I'm kind of Optimistic because I I look at the polls on the particular issues and people seem to agree that they don't want this border. They don't want to go uh, to the big cities anymore. They don't. They're they're doubtful of media. But because of our federal system, this first wave of pushback—the really adamant, muscular pushback—is more or less 500,000 people leaving California in 14 months, and almost as many as New York. So. We're watching the greatest change in demographics, I think, in our whole lifetime. We are self-separating at a radical view. And I think what we're going to watch in the next five years, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Baltimore, Washington, they're going to have enormous budget problems. They're going to have pension meltdowns. Their downtowns are going to be, nobody will and they're dying. And that's sad because they were an integral part of the American economy. But that's besides people's political expression. They're just they're voting with their feet in a way we've never seen in this country. And California is a very different state than it was 10 years ago just because of migration. I think tragically for these cities is that there's not going to be the normal corrective that we saw in the 70s with a Bloomberg or Giuliani because of technology. And there's so many people who are leaving that have the ability to work at a distance take california we should be in a complete housing crisis because of the recession and people leaving the state and yet if you look at the real estate market outside sacramento all the way to grass valley it's booming and why is it booming because young people are selling their homes in the bay area with their families and they're moving to the california foothills where they can Zoom, they can work at home and their family on one acre. That's that's a phenomenon throughout the state that they're cocooning in particular nice scenic areas with access to a major urban if they, uh, hospital if they have to, but, but they don't want to connect physically anymore. And they won't. I think they're gone. They're done with. These cities are childless. If you go through them and you look at the schools, I was in San Francisco last Monday and I was just walking around. There's no children there but nobody has children inside San Francisco. And I don't know what the teachers unions are going to do about it, but, and the stores, I I must, it's 30% empty. These beautiful new stores that were built during the boom of 2010, you go buy them and they're just for rent, vacant. Nobody's there.
0: That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pouchon and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.